everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us today, then let me just welcome you and say that I am so glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. Let's begin today by looking at a passage of scripture that we briefly touched on in the previous episode, and uh, that's 2 Kings chapter 6. So you can follow along if you want. Um, We won't be staying in this passage very long, but I thought that it would be a great place to begin for our discussion today. So 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, it says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. That was through verse 14. So let's pause here. Um, So what's going on here is that the king of Syria is warring against Israel. But Elisha, the prophet, is warning the king of Israel about where the king of Syria is going to attack, so the king of Israel is able to evade his attacks and not fall into his hands. And this happens so effectively in enough times that the king of Syria thinks that there's some sort of traitor in his midst. He thinks that there's someone in Israel, or not in Israel, someone in uh, Syria who is betraying him and sharing this information with the king of Israel so that he's able to evade him. But then one of the king of Syria's servants says, oh no, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. It's Elisha the prophet. And he says, he tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedroom. And this just, he's like, he, he sees clearly this nothing. He's not, this isn't a secret from him. He sees, he knows what you're thinking and he knows what you're planning. And therefore he warns the king and they evade you. So the king of Syria says, well, where is he? And they say, well, he's in Dothan. He says, then, then let's get him. Go get him. And he sends chariots and horses and a great army which surrounds the city at night. So resuming in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord. Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And we'll stop there. That was through verse 17. And you can read the rest of the passage. You can go and finish out the passage, see how that unfolds, what happens to the Syrian army, and so on and so forth. But for the sake of our discussion today... I just want to stop right there. And as I said, we touched on this passage in the previous episode as well. The fact that the servant here, he came out and what he saw was the physical opponent. He saw the army of the Syrians and he was greatly dismayed, greatly troubled. Elisha was not troubled. And Elisha prayed that his, this young man's eyes would be opened. The Lord honored that request. And what did he see? 
he saw a spiritual reality that was present there that a few moments prior he had been oblivious to. The hills were lined with the army of God, chariots of fire all around. And all of a sudden, by comparison, the army of the Syrians, I'm sure, looked very, very small. Now, what happened? What happened was just that this young man became aware of what was happening spiritually around them. And like I said, I touched on this in the previous episode, but I want to continue the conversation that we started last time. And one thing that we pointed out is that if we're going to have a biblical worldview, if we're going to see the world the way that God says that it is through his word, then we have to acknowledge the reality of the existence of the spiritual realm and not just the existence of it, but the fact that it overlaps with and interacts with the physical realm. Furthermore, we have to acknowledge that many times, not all the time, but many times what's going on spiritually isn't perceivable through the five senses. And so via the five senses, we can be somewhat oblivious to what's going on spiritually, but that doesn't mean that something is not happening spiritually. And let's use this example. In this example, in this passage that we just looked at, this guy was granted the opportunity to see you know, via the five senses. He was granted the opportunity to see with his eyes what was actually happening spiritually. But my point is, what was happening spiritually was already present there before he picked it up with his eyes. He was not aware of it, but if he had been, how he felt about the circumstance would have been entirely different. You see a calmness about Elisha. You see panic in his servant. And what is the difference between the two of them? Well, Elisha says, he says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed that the Lord would open his servant's eyes. Elisha was aware of the spiritual reality. So for us, we need to be aware that things are going on spiritually around us. And actually, I'll just go ahead and take this time to say I'm not going to reteach the content from the previous episode, although there will be overlap. And as we've already seen in this episode, some things will be repeated. But I would encourage you to listen to episode 79 of this podcast as well. If you have not yet, it's, uh, it's entitled Satan Was in Eden Too, because these are different components of the same conversation that we're having here. Episode 79 and this one as well. Different pieces to the same puzzle, just trying to deepen and give us a more full idea of what's going on spiritually, and how to engage in spiritual warfare. So one of the things that we talked about in the previous episode, and I'm like I said, I'm not going to reteach all that, but I went through a list of scriptures that acknowledge reality was like the spiritual realm. And you can go back and listen to that long list of scriptures that we went through. But there's one scripture in particular that I do want to highlight again, and that's James 4, 7, which says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What can we learn? Let's right there. Those words: resist the devil, and he can flee. I'm sorry, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What can we learn from the fact that the Holy Spirit, through James, chose to put that in the Word of God? Well, two things immediately come to mind: one, that the enemy is real, and two, that he's after us. Why else would we need to resist him? Like it says in First Peter five, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So with this account in 2 Kings chapter 6, I find in it a beautiful illustration of spiritual warfare. And I have found myself many times feeling just like the servant here, where he walks out and he's surrounded. He walks out and the enemy is all around him. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt surrounded? Have you ever felt like you're being just attacked from multiple angles. I know I have. 
and I know I have felt that way many times. And uh, what comes to my mind, and I'll just share this with you, and, and we're working our way towards the, the principle that we're going to look at today. Like, like last time, we looked at one specific principle, one specific component and truth of this, and today we're going to look at a, another one singular sort of practical thing where there's just, I'm just still setting the stage right now. But what came to my mind as I was thinking about this passage where um, they were surrounded and how many times I have felt surrounded, just surrounded by the enemy and attacked on multiple fronts. What came to my mind is Psalm 139 in verse 5, where it says, and this is talking to the Lord, it, uh, David says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. What's fascinating about this verse is this, or one of the fascinating things, is where it says, you hem me in behind and before. Where it says, you hem me in. That word, the idea behind that word is things like to bind, to besiege, to confine, to cramp, to confine, secure, to shut in, to enclose. In a word, it's the idea of surrounding. And you even hear that in the passage where it says, you hem me in behind and before. You hear the idea of surrounding there. And then he says, and lay your hand upon me. And then David goes on to say in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, what's so interesting about that is this. The word means like besiege. And what does it mean to besiege something? Besiege something is when an army surrounds a city to conquer it. It's what we actually see happening in 2 Kings chapter 6 whenever the army of the Syrians come against Dothan and they surround it. The city is under siege. And, but here in Psalm 139, it's used in like an inverted way, a positive way. Like it's used to mean something good. The idea is the Lord has surrounded me. He has enclosed me. He has secured me. He is all around me. And I find this truth communicated even in that passage, where in the passage in 2 Kings chapter 6, we see that the city is besieged by um, the attacking army of the Syrians, but the attacking army of the Syrians is besieged by God. And so Elisha is surrounded by God, behind and before, all around right? So we see this sort of thing where it's even when we feel surrounded by the enemy, as believers, we can call to mind verses like Psalm 139, where it says, Lord, you surround me. You hem me in behind him before you lay your hand upon me. You are acquainted with all my ways. The Lord surrounds me. So now, Let's talk about one more specific component. Now, this is a little bit of setup, something that I just wanted to share because I, I don't know if you can relate to it, but I felt surrounded before. I felt com completely surrounded by the enemy and attacked on multiple fronts. But Lord, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So let's go to 1 Samuel 17, one of the most famous incidents from the life of David, and indeed the entire Old Testament, no doubt. Such a famous account that even the unbelieving world, which catch, and who, with no exposure to the Bible even, would catch references to this account. And of course, it's David and Goliath. We're going to see a principle of spiritual warfare from 1 Samuel 17. And in fact, uh, at Mentoring Men for the Master, where I'm on staff, we have been talking about this very passage and, uh, and actually this very subject of spiritual warfare as well. And so I feel like 
just in my own life, the Lord has really been leading me into this topic of spiritual warfare from multiple different angles, that being one of them. But there is a principle here in 1 Samuel 17 that I want to draw out. Just one thing, just one primary thing. And if we were to go all the way through 1 Samuel 17 and draw out all the principles about spiritual warfare that can be found there, this would be a long series. It would be a long episode and a long series. But there's just one thing that I feel like the Lord highlighted to me recently. So let's... um. I mean, 1 Samuel 17, it's a pretty lengthy passage. Let's, you know what, let's just read through it. I'm going to pause, I'm going to comment along the way, but I really think that if we do the work up front of reading through it and, uh, and having it fresh on our minds, that it will help us see more clearly the very thing that, um, that I'm hoping to draw out today. So let's look at this. So beginning at verse 1, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. That's my best attempt at pronouncing those names. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come down? I'm sorry, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So that's the first 10 verses. So what's happening here, Saul is still king of Israel. This is in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 6, uh, 17. However, in the prior chapter, 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel had already been sent to David to anoint him with oil. The Holy Spirit rushes upon him, and David is going to replace Saul as the king. However, at this point in the story, David, although he has been anointed king, has not yet ascended the throne, and Saul is still occupying the, the position of king. They're fighting against the Philistines, which was a common enemy of Israel during this time frame. And out of the camp of the Philistines comes this mammoth of a guy, this giant with this intimidating presence, large, heavy armor. And he comes out and says, you know, just start smack talking and says, basically, like, let's make this a 1v1. You pick one, let him come out and fight me. Whoever wins, the other army, the other nation will serve the, the winning army. So the losers will serve the winners. So he comes out and he says this. Very, very belligerent Goliath is. Very aggressive. And let's see how Saul responds. Resuming in verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is very important, and we'll come back to that. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of, ben, of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. 
The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of, the, of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Okay, stop there. That was verse 16. For 40 days. So Goliath is coming out offering these taunts. We've already seen that Saul and the Israelite army are afraid. It says they were dismayed and greatly afraid in verse 11. And so this just goes on for over a month. For 40 days, uh, Goliath is coming out twice a day, morning and evening, and shouting these sorts of things. Throwing out his intimidating threats. Like, what sort of stuff is he shouting? We see down here in um, in uh, verse um. 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He says things like back up in verse 8, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for himself and let him come down to me. And then the whole like challenge. So we see a lot of intimidation happening here. A lot of um, arrogant boasting threats, fear mongering. And then David is mentioned here. David is the youngest of eight. We find that out in the previous chapter as well. He is a shepherd. He tends his father's sheep. However, here he is also going back and forth between the army of Israel and the um, and his father's household and the sheep in the field. So he'll leave the sheep under the care of these uh, you know these these other shepherds, and he would go back and forth. And so we see that his three oldest brothers are actually in the army of Israel. So continuing in verse 17, Then Jesse, who's David's dad, and Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain in these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. So we see kind of why David's even going back and forth here. Jesse, his father, is sending him with supplies for his brother, uh, his three brothers, as well as ten cheeses for the commander of their thousand. I would like ten cheeses. So he he's sending them with these supplies. They're going back and forth. Or he's going back and forth. And he basically says, bring me news. Bring me news of how things are going. See if, like, see if your brothers are well. Bring me some token from them. So resuming in verse 19. Now Saul and they and all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Notice those last words. That was the end of verse 23. And David heard him. Those words are full of foreshadowing. And David heard him. Resuming in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So verse 24 is kind of a reiteration of verse 11, where it says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So they're fleeing from Goliath. They're terrified of him. They're much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? 
Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Pause there. You can hear the indignation in David's voice. You can hear David's not just like, yeah, you know, just like making small talk. You hear the indignation where he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the whole thing about circumcision, that goes all the way back to Genesis, I believe, 17. And also there's more information about it in, of course, the law of Moses as well, about how this is a sign of the covenant for all males in the people of Israel to be circumcised. And so the idea is, this is another way of pointing out how this guy, Goliath, this guy who's come to defy the armies of the living God, is outside of the people of God. He is not in the community of Israel. He's not one of the people of God. And indeed he's coming and he's taunting the people of God. And by extension, he is, um, he is, uh, defying the one true God. He is, uh, well, we'll see it actually happen because this, this becomes more than just a contest between David and Goliath. And that unfolds more in the passage. So we'll see that happen. So verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know, the, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So Eliab, the firstborn, looks at David, and he is... He gets ticked off at David. It says his anger was kindled against him, and he starts accusing David. You've come down to see the battle. I know the presumption of the evil in your heart. And David's like, what have I done? I'm like, what on earth have I done here? And I think what we probably see in Eliab is a thing that can be present in any of us. When other people, I mean, it sounds like Eliab, I mean, goodness, here comes his youngest brother saying the stuff that Eliab should be saying. He, a, a, like, demonstrating the courage that Eliab, the firstborn, should. I mean, Eliab, I mean, some, he might have been getting angry because, who knows? I mean, David was actually kind of stepping out and doing what's right here. David was saying what was true, and Eliab had to face the fact that he, along with everybody else, kept running away whenever Goliath came out. Eliab might have had a mirror held up to him and seen the fact that he had been giving into fear. Maybe. I don't know exactly. Obviously, I don't know what Eliab was thinking. All I do know is that Eliab fled, when just like the rest of them, when because it says um, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So we just see Eliab getting mad at David. So verse thirty-one, continuing when when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him or delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We see, interestingly enough, something happening here very similar to what we saw back in 2 Kings chapter 6, which is this. Saul and the army of Israel is very much like the servant of Elisha, where they're looking at the physical, they're looking at the actual force of the enemy. They're looking at this giant, this huge man with this heavy, intimidating armor, and they're seeing only the physical. But David, David is aware of a spiritual reality that these other people are neglecting to consider, just like Elisha was. So if there's a parallel here, it's just like the servant is to the is to Saul and the army of Israel the way that Elisha is to David, because they were aware and David straight up says it. He says, listen, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The Lord will do this. And we don't see fear in David. We see indignation in David. So resuming in verse 38, then Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hands and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Isn't it interesting? The Lord is going to use what David was already familiar with. The shepherd's sling. He has the shepherd's staff. He's not going in armor that he's not got experience with. Resuming in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And listen to this next line. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Note that he cursed David by his gods. Okay, verse 44. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So that was verse 47. <laughs> Y'all, that's some good smack talk. That's a, This is some good pre-battle trash talk. So, so, but notice this. It's no longer about just David and Goliath, because look what happens. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then David said, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, whom you have defied. This is similar to when Elijah was up on Mount Carmel and he challenged the prophets of Baal and Asherah, the false prophets. And he said, okay, let's see if Baal will answer by fire. Whichever God answers by fire is the one true God. And of course, Baal does not. God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Most High, he does. So we see here, this is in some way similar. It's a God contest. This isn't just about Israel and in the Philistines. This is about showing, how can I even say this? 
This is about God getting glory. God being revealed as the Most High. God being revealed as the one true God here. Manifested as such in this. Because here comes Goliath cursing Israel by their gods. And so here's the idea behind it. I mean, just it, whoever wins this battle has implications on the the one that the army serves, right? Especially, and it's been overtly brought into it, but th- that's kind of a side note, but I, but I did just want to point it out. But listen to this. So Goliath is sitting here and he's saying, um, basically, I'm going to kill you. And David throws it right back into his face. He said, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down. I'll cut off your head. I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. David's basically being like, yo, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth are going to have a feast today. They are going to, it's going to be like golden corral for them. They're going to feel terrible by the time they're done because there's going to be so much food and they're going to walk away thinking, why did I go back for more pizza? It wasn't even that good. But anyways, you know, <laughs> I guess you're just getting a window into uh, the regrets of my past, but you get the idea. You get the idea here. So what's going to happen? Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the, uh, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. All right, that was all of 1 Samuel 17. Wow. Cool, right? It's good. It's good. Now, we can talk about this from a lot of different perspectives. Obviously. There's a ton of different principles and applications that we can find here that we could apply even to our struggle in spiritual warfare. When the enemy comes, taunts us, threatens to destroy us, threatens to kill us, when he begins attacking us, we are surrounded on every side, like they were in Dothan, where he comes out morning and evening, shouting his insulting, threatening, you know, boastful threats. Jesus said in John, let me flip over here to John 8, 44. He says, he's talking to the Pharisees, but listen to the information he gives us about our enemy. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And again, Jesus was speaking about the Pharisees there, but we see a description of the enemy too. Remember last time we looked at in 1 Peter 5, where it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, I said that there was one principle I wanted to draw out from the passage in 1 Samuel 17 that is a contributor to our discussion about spiritual warfare and should be taken in conjunction with the conversation from last time. What is that principle? Well, if we look at this, if we look at... You can... what The, the answer to that can be seen as what is the difference between Saul and the army of Israel and David? Like, what is the difference? And, uh, and that will reveal what the principle is today. So if you look at this, the passage starts out with Goliath coming out and offering his taunts and his threats, right? And what is Israel's response? It says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Then down in verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. It's going on for 40 days. Then Goliath comes up. At this point, David is here, down in verse 23. David is here, and Goliath came up. Um, he comes up and out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And this time it says, David heard him. However, in verse 24, it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So we see from verses 11 and 24 that the Israelites are just running away. They're terrified. They're afraid. And this goes on for 40 days. But then David sees it. And what does David do? What is David's response? Because this difference in response is going to highlight the principle that we're looking at today. David did not give in to fear. David is not described in this passage at all as being afraid. On the contrary, we see a confidence in David that's completely absent from the army of Israel. Now, what is that? What is that confidence? Well, the confidence is in the Lord, like we see in verse um, in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, right? It's kind of like whenever uh, Samuel, I'm not sorry, not Samuel, Elisha was talking to his servant and said that those who are for us are greater than those who are with them. It's kind of like, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I am surrounded. I am besieged and encircled and enclosed by God, right? So David's response, David's response was completely different. But let me show you what happened. The Israelites gave into fear. And how long did this go on? 40 days morning and evening. They gave into fear and Goliath is coming out and he's hurling his insult to them. He is intimidating them. They are paralyzed for 40 days. Nothing is happening for 40 days. They're not doing, they're stuck there for 40 days. David comes out. Things happen very quickly with David. He gets indignant and he said, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. He goes. And when the actual battle begins, think about how quick this was. He runs up to the battle line, loads up the stone, slings it, it smashes into Goliath's forehead. Goliath tumbles, then David runs up and decapitates him. 
all of that could have happened in a matter of just a few minutes. The process of slinging the stone probably happened in less than 60 seconds. Because, I mean, Goliath's probably not just going to be standing there, just like, okay, he's swinging this thing around. I'm just going to stand here and do nothing. Goliath was probably advancing. Think about this. This was, a again, a 1v1. This was a, a contest. So David runs up, loads up the stone, slings it, hits him in the forehead, and then decapitates him. What, what the Israelites endured for over for 40 days, David got there and it was handled in a few minutes. Like, I, I don't know how long the process kind of leading up to it was where he was brought before Saul, but I'm talking about the actual battle. And what was the difference? Well, David trusted in the Lord. David, we actually see in the uh, prior chapter uh, that he, he is close to the Holy Spirit. And like I said, we've been talking about this in Mentoring Men for the Master, and one of the points that we've drawn out is if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. Paul says that in Romans 8 9. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. Just like David was closed with the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So, what's the difference? The difference is fear. The difference is fear. And in my experience, fear has been one of the chief like tools in the enemy's tool belt to distract and incapacitate me and just like the army of Israel keep me stuck in the same place for great periods of time keep me going around the same mountains it might not have been for 40 days exactly but it sure felt like it where you're stuck and you're not just stuck in sort of sort of like bored passivity you're stuck in terror because he came out morning and evening taunting taunting morning and evening hurling his insults and I spent so much time cowering and running away trying to distance myself from the source of the fear or something like that. But David, the difference is that he did not give into fear. He had confidence in the Lord. David himself said in Psalm 56, 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. David runs up and engages in the battle. Now, this is what I know, and you can probably relate to this. Whenever fear comes knocking, Whenever fear comes knocking, if you crack the door, if you open the door, it gets so much worse. If you give it any airtime, it gets so much worse. I mean, look at David. David runs up here and he's fighting against, I mean, he starts talking to Goliath and Goliath starts hurling his threats and Goliath, uh, David throws him right back in Goliath's face. face. He's like, no. He's like, I'm going to chop off your heads. I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. You know, he just doesn't put up with it. 2 Timothy 1.7 popular passage says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us a spirit, not of fear. This fear, this type of fear we're talking about is not from God. The good type of fear, the good type of fear is called fear of the Lord. And that's different. Fear of the Lord is taking God seriously. Fear of the Lord is believing God, taking God at his word, believing that, um, I'm not taking sin lightly knowing that God is holy, respecting, honoring, revering him, and acknowledging the fact that he is the most high. These are all different aspects of what it means to fear God. This is very different than the fear that we see here. This is the kind of fear that leads people to run and to hide and to be controlled. And so just hear me. When fear comes knocking, don't crack the door. Don't even, like, don't even engage. Gauge it. Like, don't even get in. Like, if you start the conversation with it in a sort of like, if you crack the door a little bit to fear, then, then it just it makes it so much worse. So fear. 
our response to this has to be the same as David's. Like it says in the scriptures, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, obviously, this is not something that we're going to do in our own power. David didn't pretend to do it in his own power. David relied on the Lord, and he said that the Lord would be the one who would deliver him from this. But fear? What happens when fear comes knocking? One of the best things you can do when fear comes knocking is just ignore it. Ignore it. It's like, no, to acknowledge this is just a distraction. This is just a distraction right now to get me off like unfocused on what God has actually called me to do, to get me super inwardly focused, to go into this crazy problem-solving sort of mood, to actually become very, very self-centered because I'm only focusing on myself and becoming oblivious to everything else as I'm having an internal panic attack. And like that's not from God. God gave us a spirit, not a fear. So what it looks like to do what David did, where it's like, you know, smack talking back, really, is just be like, you know, the fear comes creeping in and be like, I'm not going to listen to this. I have too much important stuff to do by the power of the Holy Spirit for the kingdom of God to do this. I God has called me to do stuff. And if I get focused on this, then I'm not going to do those things. This isn't from God. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Lord for help. But resist the devil. Resist him. Stand strong against him. And don't put up with that. So it's just to say, no, no, I'm not listening to this. I was talking to the guy who disciples me specifically about what it looks like practically to resist the devil. And he referenced James 4, 6 through 8. And you can read it. Uh, in fact, I'll flip there really quickly. James 4, 6 through 8. Because that's one of the passages we actually talked about where it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, submit to submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded and he draws out like look in this passage humility God opposes the problem gives grace to the humble submission submit yourselves therefore to God um, drawing near to God he said these are ways that it looks like to resist the devil but then he said something that was very very good and I want to share with you guys here and I'm just going to read what I wrote down the enemy will test my resolve. As soon as I say something or do something, he won't necessarily leave. He will test you to see if you really mean it. When he discerns that I really mean business, he has no choice but to flee. If he senses double-mindedness, he will attack. And so we see that sort of thing in the wilderness with Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where the enemy comes to him not once, not twice, but three times, and Jesus resists him all three times, standing on the truth of the word of God, even when the enemy tries to take scripture, twist it, and misapply it. And then what happens at the end, after these three temptations? What happens? It says that the devil left him. The devil left him. So you can uh, you can look at that in Matthew 4.11 and also uh, Luke 4.13. But look at that. He said... When you start digging in your heels, just stand your ground. Hold fast. Don't give in. Even if the enemy starts testing your resolve, show like that you mean business by the power of the Holy Spirit, by you know crying out to God, by humility, depending on God, submission to him, and confidence in God who will deliver you. Because the scriptures say that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Resist him by holding fast to the truths that God shows us in his word, to the truth of his word, just like we see Jesus doing in the wilderness. Cling to the truths of God and be ready to quote scripture as an offensive attack towards the enemy. 
whenever he comes, just like it says in, in, in uh, Ephesians six seventeen, that is the sword of the spirit is the word of God, quoting relevant scriptures to repel the enemy. But with fear, just ignore it. My friends, y'all are so important to the kingdom of God because God has a will for your life. It says it in uh, in Ephesians 6. No, not Ephesians 6, although that's a wonderful passage about spiritual warfare. That's the armor of God passage. Ephesians 2.10. I'm flipping there right now. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul famously wrote that we are, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared beforehand good works for you to walk in, and the enemy is going to seek to distract you from those things. And so just realize one of the best ways that we can discern whether or not something is spiritual warfare is, is this distracting me from what I know God has called me to do? If it has, then be very, very suspicious of that. Whatever, like, it's like if a thought comes into your mind and it's just like, okay, I know God has told me to do blank, but this is really distracting me. And the biggest example I can think of is fear. Fear is what I would consider to be the ultimate distractor and paralyzer. You, and if we want to be disabled, all we got to do is give in to fear. I have spent so much time in fear. Don't do it. Don't give in to fear. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I, uh, because I'm a nerd, thought about Lord of the Rings, as I frequently do, and there is this scene in The Return of the King. It is when uh, Minas Tirith, the capital city of Gondor, is under attack, feeling just the weight of the, the enemy of Mordor coming against the city. And Gandalf, um, those of you who are not Lord of the Rings fans right now are probably like, oh my gosh, this guy is such a nerd. And I, I, I received that. But for those of you who have seen the movie, you know. But even if you don't, just bear with me. So Gandalf, he has this quote where he's trying to rally the soldiers who are fighting against the enemy. And it is exactly what I think we all need to hear. But what he says is, hold them back. Do not give in to fear. Stand to your posts. Fight. And that's what we got to do. Hold them back. Do not give in to fear. Stand to your posts. Fight. Dig in your heels. And when the enemy comes, just like Goliath did, hurling his insults, don't take up. Like, don't just take that. Like, resist the devil. Like, look at how David responded. David, like, David threw that trash right back in Goliath's face. He's like, I'm going to chop off your head and I want to feed you to the birds of the air. You're going to die. Which I love where it says in, um, it says in, uh, in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. I love it. Romans 16, 20. And that, of course, makes us think of Genesis 3, 15, the early prophecy of Jesus, who will be the snake crusher. And for those of us who are born again, we are in Christ. We are in the one who crushes the serpent. And uh, in fact, this morning, I was reading a Psalm 91, a wonderful psalm that like whenever you're talking about spiritual warfare read psalm 91 it's a wonderful psalm when read it in the like through the lens of spiritual warfare but it says this in verse 13 you will tread on the lion and the adder the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot i love that so i could go on I really could, but I'm going to stop here because i think the point has been made but the point is this my friends don't give in to fear don't give in to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. And, and we have to recognize, we have got to learn to recognize the voice of our dear shepherd. Our shepherd who is gentle and lowly, the one who leads us beside, you know, uh, beside still waters. The one who fills us with hope and joy and peace. Look at these things and measure them against the fruit of the spirit. 
when you're hit with all sorts of thoughts, is this producing things like the fruit of the Spirit, or is this leading me to despair and paralysis? Anyways, I could keep going. I'm going to stop here. So I hope that this is helpful. I hope that this was clear. I mean, if it wasn't, then I'll just say don't give in to fear, because that's the chief tactic, a chief tactic of the enemy in your life. Don't give in to fear. Trust God. The opposite of fear is trust, because you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3 says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56, 3. And there's you know plenty of other scriptures. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Anyways, let me pray. Let me pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for all these dear listeners. And Lord, help us to stand. Lord, we can't do this in our own power. We really can't. We are commanded to resist the devil, but first we are commanded to submit ourselves to you and to rely on your grace. Lord, you are the one. We need your help, God. We need you to do this because we can't do this ourselves. Lord Jesus, you are the one who crushes the serpent under your feet, but then in you, we trample him underfoot too. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. And so, Lord, help us to resist him. Help us, please give us discernment to recognize his voice so that we can do just what David did with Goliath. But, Lord, we need your power. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, please give us discernment, Lord. And please make us strong. Lord, we love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends. Well, I Just Want to Talk About the Bible is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that any and all gifts given are tax deductible. So if you feel so led, instructions on how to give can be found in the footer of every podcast episode. And thank you so much to those of you who have given. Uh, May the Lord bless you abundantly for your generosity. All right, guys. Well, until next time, God bless you.